The sermon text this morning will be from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they, they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and now I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to, said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went out and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, as Les said, my name is Austin. I'm the new campus minister here at Ole Miss. My wife and I have been in Jonesboro, Arkansas for the past three years, starting RUF at Arkansas State, and we are so excited to be here. Um, as Les said, we moved in about a week ago, and this weekend we watched everybody flood into town, and uh, everybody was walking around, and we couldn't help but think to ourselves, like, man, people in Oxford love RUF Sunday. Um, so we're excited that everybody came. We're excited that everybody gets to talk about and support this ministry. Uh, but in all seriousness, I'm so excited to be a part of this ministry because um, of the legacy that it has. When Les first approached us with the prospect of this job, he approached us with all of these amazing facts about RUF at Ole Miss. It's been here for over 45 years. Uh, it's impacted hundreds and thousands of students over the years. It has amazing current students, some who are back there. You heard the amazing worship team here this morning. And it also has uh, an incredible amount of church and individual support. And the reality is that all of those facts are amazing. They're things worth celebrating. But what stirred our affections to actually want to do this job was not the facts. What stirred in us the affection to want to do, to do this job was hearing the stories about how students have been impacted by the gospel here. 
One of my best friends in the world uh, is a former Ole Miss student. His name's Walt Davis. He is actually, has been the RUF campus minister at Samford University in Birmingham for the last six years. And he was an Ole Miss student from 2008 to 2012. Now, Walt came to college not knowing who Jesus, uh, or he knew who Jesus was, but he really didn't care that much about following him. And throughout his whole college career, he was kind of obstinate, But late in his junior year, he walked into the back rows of Paris Yates Chapel and he heard Les actually preach the gospel of grace. And it transformed him, transformed the whole trajectory of his life because Jesus met him there in that chapel. Uh, I was in that chapel three weeks ago, uh, preaching at RUF Sunday and I sent a picture to Walt and this is what he said in response. He said, man, Many years ago, I sat in those pews as a lost, lost man. God is so faithful. It's true. God is faithful and he's working in students' lives through the ministry of RUF. But the work happens through stories. And the reason I mention these stories that created in us a desire to want this job is because stories in particular have a way of creating in us a desire that facts just can't do. I really think this is why the gospel writers were so committed to telling all of the facts about Jesus in the context of stories. Here this morning, we get a story that has a lot of facts about the resurrection in it, but mainly what John wants us to see is how we would experience this resurrection for ourselves by looking at it through the lens of Mary Magdalene's story. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna look at this text in three different points. Uh, The first two are gonna be a little bit longer. The second or the third one is gonna be very brief. So first point, the resurrection is an answer to our grief. C.S. Lewis in his book, A Grief Observed, uh, a book that he wrote just after the passing of his wife, very late in his life, after he had done a lot of the other writings that he had, he wrote this book in response to his wife's death because he didn't know how to process the grief that he was feeling. And he actually says this, he compares grief to fear once he thought about it hard enough. The reason he did this is because both grief and fear are emotions that we feel when something horrible has happened to us and yet we don't have any control to change it. Grief is exactly what Mary is feeling in this passage, a sense of helplessness. It's with grief that the story starts out as she approaches the the empty tomb. We find in other gospel accounts of this story that Mary is actually not going to the tomb with like the expectation of resurrection. She's not going joyfully. Other gospel accounts say that she's carrying spices with her, which are actually burial spices, spices that she was carrying to cover up the stench of Jesus's decaying corpse. It's with grief that when she finds the tomb empty, she can't help but contain herself. And she runs frantically, helplessly to to the disciples to get help. And it's with grief that this passage ends with Mary, or in verse 11, this passage ends with Mary weeping by the tomb. After the disciples have left, she doesn't know what to do besides sit and grieve. Mary's experience here invites us to consider our own grief, our own empty tomb experiences, what it's like to have that weight of helplessness wash over you when life seems out of control. But to be honest, as I uh, have experienced myself and in ministry, we don't like dealing with our grief. 
I remember sitting with a student this fall in the Arkansas State Student Union uh, as she recounted her summer to me. It was a summer full of tragedy and trial, family, family strife, financial strife, all capped off at the very end of the summer by the passing away of her kitten. And she just weeped. She couldn't contain herself. And she looked up at me as the tears fell from her eyes and she said, I'm so sorry. I'm so embarrassed that I'm crying. I think this is often how we feel about our grief. We feel like it's too hard to admit, it's too hard to embrace. And most of all, we don't think anyone wants to deal with it. I don't know why that is. Uh, it could be this culture that we live in where everybody's just trying to put on a happy face and make sure everyone knows that they're not a bother. It could be the fact that we were raised to be tough and to suck it up. Or we think the gospel is just this optimistic thing that we put on the end of our lives where everything's happy and good all the time. But this experience here, this story here is actually an invitation that John is giving us to reconsider our grief and what Jesus has to say about it. And instead of suppressing it, instead of avoiding it, instead of ignoring it, that the gospel gives us the resources. The gospel actually invites us to say something about our grief. Because the reality is we are all grieving. This community in Oxford knows that well at the present moment where our communities are assaulted with, with the prospect and the reality of death and hurt and relationships. And we also know that personally, when we look in the mirror and we realize we are not the person that we wish we would be. We turn on the TVs, we look at our phones and the chaos of this world overwhelms us to the point where we just have to shut it off eventually. The question we have in life is not, are we grieving or not? The question we have to deal with is what are you doing with your grief? And what I love about this passage is that John paints this amazing, beautiful, hopeful picture of the resurrection right on top of the canvas of Mary's grief. Because what he's wanting us to see is that Jesus says something about our grief. He's actually come to do something about our grief. The first thing we see that he does about our grief is he meets us in it. If you look at the passage, you can see that Jesus doesn't shame Mary for crying. The angels don't shame Mary for crying. They're not just like, hey, stop. What they do is they validate it. They're actually curious about it. They meet her in her sadness. Ultimately, that is what the incarnation or at least part of the incarnation is all about. That Jesus has come voluntarily to meet us in our sadness to meet us in our grief. That's who Jesus is in his very person. Isaiah, when he was prophesying about who Jesus would be, said that he was a man of sorrows, one stricken with grief. This means that when you're crying, Jesus doesn't ask you to look up and say, I'm so sorry. He meets you there. He's inviting you to have a shoulder to cry on. But secondly, as we move to the second point, he doesn't just meet us in our grief, he actually does something about it. Which the second point is the resurrection is the reason for our hope. So we, two, we see two main reasons for hope that the resurrection brings in the midst of our grief in this passage. The first one comes from the first interaction that we see Mary have, verses 11 through 13, Mary's interaction with these angels by the tomb. So amidst her grief, as she stands weeping by the tomb, Mary, looks one more time, maybe just in desperation, 
to see if the tomb was really empty. She looks in, and this time it's not. This time she sees two angels sitting there, one at the head of where Jesus was laid, one at the foot of where Jesus is laid. Now, what did she see there? Or what does John want us to see there? I think to understand this, we have to backtrack a little bit because the Old Testament actually helps us make sense of all that Jesus accomplished. So if we backtrack all the way to Exodus 25, we see that this is the moment where God is meeting with Moses and he's giving him instructions on how he is to construct the tabernacle, the place where God would meet with his people, be with them in the midst of their grief and sorrow. When he instructs them to build the tabernacle, he tells Moses that at the center of the tabernacle, there's gonna be this place called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was basically this wooden box where God's presence would dwell, where he would meet with his people. On the cover of this wooden box, Moses was instructed to have his uh, contractors, I guess, make a golden plate, a golden plate that would cover the Ark of the Covenant with an angelic figure at one end and an angelic figure at the other end. This place, as, as they tell us, was called the place of atonement, or if you've heard it called the mercy seat. What this place signified, what this cover of God's presence signified was that God is only accessible through means of atonement, that we in our sin cannot approach the throne of grace expecting to be just granted access to God, but that we had to have atonement spilled for us. That's what all the blood was spilled for in the Old Testament, all the sacrifices were for in the Old Testament, they sprinkled on the throne of grace so that the people could take their grief and access God with it. Well, as we know from the book of Hebrews, all of those things that were in the tabernacle were really just shadows of what Jesus came to accomplish in its fullness. And when Mary stoops to look in the tomb and she sees that angel sitting at the head and one at the foot, what she sees is the true mercy seat. She sees the place where Jesus's blood was spilled once and for all and finally. And it, what it says is that she is guaranteed mercy through the means of Jesus's sacrifice on her behalf. That if she wants access to God, that if she wants a safe place to take her grief, to take her sins, she can have it by means of Christ's sacrifice. Now, practically, what does mercy have anything to do with how we have hope in the midst of our grief? I don't know if there's any Ted Lasso watchers in here, but Ted Lasso, the great coach once said, there's something worse out there than being sad. It's being sad and being alone. This is why the hope of mercy is so important for our understanding of how God deals with our grief. Because our greatest fear is not that we would be sad, but that we would be sad and be alone. That we wouldn't merit someone coming to us and comforting us. That we aren't good enough for, to have someone say, I will meet you in that place of sadness. The mercy seat that Jesus laid on, that gives us free and confident access to God is the means by which we can come to God with our sadness. That we can come to God with our grief which means in Christ, you might be sad as you await his full, his, his last coming, but you're never sad and alone. 
This brings me to my second point about how Jesus brings hope, how he's the reason for hope. And this comes from the second interaction we see in this passage. As she turns away from the tomb, she sees Jesus standing there in verse 14 through 16. And what we see in this passage is that the resurrection gives us hope of reconciliation. So as a campus minister at Arkansas State, one thing I really ran into with our students, a problem that they had in understanding the gospel was that most of them were raised knowing that Jesus died to forgive their sins. That was not the problem. The problem was that that's all they thought Jesus came to do, that he had died for their sins and that that was the gospel full stop. But that is not the comprehensive good news of the gospel. The gospel is not just about forgiveness. Imagine it this way. Imagine you were starting to do premarital counseling for a young couple. a boy and a girl who are excited about getting married and you, you, you ask the guy, hey, what's your favorite thing about your relationship? And he looks at you and says, well, I really love how good we are at handling conflict and keeping peace. Now, that sounds like an incredible Christian answer, probably something he learned in Sunday school, but how do you think his fiance would respond to that? That as he considered the best thing about their relationship, the thing he enjoyed the most was not how great they are together, was not how much he loved her, was not how much they wanted to dream and hope and achieve life together, but that they were good at handling conflict and keeping peace. Forgiveness is great, but in reality, we need more than forgiveness. What our heart longs for is not the keeping of peace between us and God. What our heart longs for is love, embrace, reconciliation. And the gospel is the fact that Jesus didn't come just to forgive us. It's that his his forgiveness gives us the means by which we are reconciled to him. Meaning we can be embraced, we can be loved, we can be known, we can be comforted. Look at the passage. Mary turns around from the empty tomb and her eyes are still filled with tears. She can't even see Jesus, thinking he's a gardener. They have a brief conversation about why she's crying. And then all of a sudden, Jesus does something that changes her entire disposition, changes her entire helplessness feeling. One commentator said, Jesus preached here the shortest and the most beautiful sermon in all of history. He looks around at Mary and all he says is her name. He just says, Mary. Now what's going on here? Why is this such good news to Mary? I was thinking about this in the context of a um, Netflix show that is pretty popular these days, Stranger Things. Uh, It's kind of a throwback show to the 1980s about a group of middle school boys that are all best friends and they go on missions to save the world or whatever. Um, But there's a moment in the first season where these middle school boys find this girl who is basically abandoned and they can't communicate with her. She doesn't really know any words. They're trying to figure out what's, what's her deal. And the only thing that she can say is her name. And her name is actually not a name, it's a number. She calls herself 11. So the progressive narrative of the story, they keep embracing her, they keep loving her, they feed her, they, they let her join the friend group. Then when all of a sudden, at the end of the season, the, the, the leader of the friend group, Mike, says, you know what? It's time to give you a proper name. And he says, you're not 11 anymore. 
your name's L. And you can see the disposition in her face change. The reason this was so impactful for L was because she had actually, we find out later, grown up in a laboratory. She was a test subject. She was not treated as someone who needed to be loved and embraced. She was treated as an object to be used. And when Mike named her, he was saying, no longer are you somebody to be used. You're somebody to be loved, embraced. You're not tolerated, you're enjoyed. That's just a small picture of what Mary experiences here at the tomb. When Jesus names her, what he is saying is, I'm not just tolerating you, Mary. I'm with you. I know you. And what Jesus is saying to us by saying our names as we trust in him by faith is that as Paul says, as he's reconciling all things to himself, he is not doing it without you in mind. He knows your name. And when he is accomplishing his redemptive work, he's doing it with you and he's doing it for you. Which very practically just means that if you're in Christ, everything's gonna be okay because Jesus is not gonna leave you behind. We'll look at the last point real quick, um, verse 17 and 18, kind of the reaction of Mary. Point three is the, rea- the resurrection is the fuel for our mission. So like most encounters in the gospels that Jesus has, this ends with Jesus commissioning Mary to go and to share her experience that she's had with Jesus, to go and be a witness to the world. Now, if you notice, Jesus says, don't cling to me, which actually means that she was clinging to him. So there was a moment where Jesus let her embrace him, but he says, not, not forever yet, not forever yet. So he commissions her to go and start the mission of a Christian go and participate in the work of the church, the very first work of the church. And the question I've been wrestling with in ministry, the question I've been wrestling with with students that I think this text speaks to, particularly in our grief, is how do we have this joyful, uh, resilient participation in God's mission without burning out? Like, look at Mary's joy. Look at the vigor in which she goes and runs and tells the disciples. She's exclaiming this good news. How do we maintain this hope and this joy in the midst of so much grief that we're presently experiencing? I actually think the answer to this question is quite simple in this story. Just look at the order of the story. Mary's joy and participation in mission was a reaction to what Jesus has done for her and the way he met her in her grief. It was not that she went on mission in order to get Jesus's comfort. It was that Jesus comforted her and that is what propelled her to go and participate in this joyful work. And the same is true for us. That if we want to not experience burnout, if we wanna maintain hope in the midst of our grief, Well, really the most spiritual thing we can do sometimes is to stop following Jesus and to actually sit at Jesus's feet. As that gentle and lowly song said, just be still enough to have Jesus wash our feet before we ever get up. That's the reason that we meet on campus every Wednesday night at 7.30. That's the reason that we come here. It's not to learn the one, two, three steps of how to win everybody for Christ. 
It's not to learn more strategies for how much, we, how, how much better we need to be following Jesus. What we come here to do, what we go to Parish Yates Chapel to do on Wednesday nights is to be fueled up and to be filled up by the grace of Jesus. Because without that, burnout's the only option. What we need the most is not to learn how to do great things for Jesus. What we need to learn is how Jesus has done great things for us. I'll end with this. Uh, I'm not a tennis person. Uh, I don't own a tennis racket, so don't be mistaken. Don't invite me to play tennis uh, after I use this illustration. But over the past year, I've read Andre Agassi's memoir, uh, great tennis player. And I've also seen King Richard, that, uh, a recent movie that came out about Venus and S Serena Williams' father uh, and the way they were raised. And it's actually really interesting to compare and contrast these stories together. Uh, Agassi and the Williams sisters have incredible careers. They were phenoms. They accomplished everything that you could possibly want to accomplish on the tennis court. And yet, in very stark contrast, you see a very different way in which they were raised and actually a very different motivation that propelled them to go be great. Uh, Agassi freely admits that he hates tennis. He hates tennis, but the only reason he played it or started playing it was because his dad made him. And as he was being raised, his dad would tell him time and time again, I want you to be number one in the world. Agassi finally got to the point where he was number one in the world and he goes home and this is what his dad said to him. You did what you were supposed to do. He didn't say he was proud. He didn't say he loved him. He just said, you did your task. In his memoir, Agassi just remembers how much burnout he felt after that. That he had worked and worked and worked in order to get his father's love and yet when he, he got what his father wanted. He didn't have the love that he wanted. On the other hand, the Williams sisters were raised in the complete opposite way. Uh, the movie is very honest. Richard, King Richard, uh, as they call him, he pushed his girls. He challenged his girls. He, he made them be great. But the reality is that he didn't make them be great in order to get love. It was his love that pushed him out and, and push them to be great. There's a scene in the car uh, as he was taking them to, to tennis practice where he just asked them a bunch of questions. And he asked them, do you know who loves you? And they said, daddy loves us. They were 12, they hadn't accomplished anything. Daddy loved them. As we end today, thinking about how Jesus meets us in our grief, he gives us hope. He fuels us for his mission. What I want us to end is, is with a picture of who our father really is. That he's our father in Jesus Christ who showed us his love by meeting us in our sadness. That he's our father that through Jesus Christ, he defeated the power of sin and death and he's making all sad things come untrue. And he's our father who encouraged us to, to go out and to follow him faithfully in the midst of our grief, not to get his love, but because he loves us. And he's inviting us to participate in this joy. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks so much for this opportunity to sit at your feet, to have our feet washed um, with your blood, to experience the mercy and the love and the joy in which you come and meet us in our sadness. 
and also the joy of having you defeat our sadness through your resurrection. We pray that as we wait for that day, that by your spirit, you would give us patience, you would give us joy, you would give us energy. And most of all, that you would continue to give us the love of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.